Welcome to the latest episode of A Just Transition, brought to you by RBS International. My name is Tim Phillips, and we all welcome back my co-host, Bradley Davidson, ESG leader, RBS International. Bradley, great to see you again. Hi, Tim. Great to be with you. Now, Bradley, today we are discussing science-based targets and the Science-Based Targets Initiative, SBTI, I think. Who's going to help us today? Over the past six months, we've conducted research into the challenges, benefits and significance of science-based targets, or SBTs, another abbreviation in the world of ESG, for alternative investment funds. Many of our listeners will be familiar with SBTs, which are quickly gaining prominence across the investment community. So we're going to bring our findings to life with one of the 125 contributors who helped shape our research. I'm pleased to welcome Henry Morgan, Sustainable Investment Lead for Foresight Group's Infrastructure and Real Assets Division. Welcome to the podcast, Henry. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking about it. So for those unfamiliar, who are Foresight Group and how are you integrating sustainability? As you mentioned, I'm the Sustainable Investment Lead for Foresight Group's Infrastructure and Real Assets team. So I guess I will come primarily from that perspective. However, what I would say is that I've worked quite a lot recently on the group's carbon neutral certification that we recently achieved. And I'm also closely linked to the work going on around calculation of financed emissions across Foresight's business lines. Foresight Group, they would classify ourselves as a sustainability-led investment manager. And that basically means that sustainability guides our current and our future investment strategies. Look at Foresight's infra portfolio. The vast majority of it is in renewable energy. That's making a very measurable and quantifiable positive contribution to the fight against climate change and decarbonisation agendas. In terms of how we integrate sustainability at Foresight Group and within the infrastructure team, I'd first of all just say that we like to be transparent. So what we have called the Sustainable Investing in Infrastructure paper. It's a useful document that contains our approach from cradle to grave about how we approach sustainability. And what that essentially details is the fact that, first of all, you need to target investment strategies that contribute meaningfully to the sustainability agenda. I've talked about renewables. A new area of focus for us is sustainable forestry and afforestation. There's also a lot of work going on around sustainable land and food and the changes that need to happen there to make a more sustainable world. So that's getting it bedded in at the strategic level. Secondly, investment stage, assessing is sustainability credentials of an asset prior to investment. And we do that by using a lot of people have their own in-house proprietary methods. We do too. We call it the sustainability evaluation tool. And we've really grounded that in a number of the well-recognized external sustainability and ESG frameworks. So SASB, GRI, GRESB, and many more. We draw on all of the metrics that they use to sort of create this tool that helps us score an asset and give us a snapshot of the sustainability credentials of every asset that we invest into. Then there's the active asset management side where we have our own in-house asset management team where sustainability performance of the assets is tracked, reported on and ideally improved throughout the asset life prior to exit. And that again is using a whole host of indicators that draw from the SET, the sustainability evaluation tool, and they're just reported on periodically. And finally, I guess key to this is transparency and reporting to stakeholders. Regarding the science-based targets, I guess it's important to be upfront and say that we as Foresight have not yet been able to set them. We've done the work of understanding our carbon footprint at a corporate level, but to be able to set science-based targets, you need to understand the carbon emissions around your financed emissions. So the, the emissions footprint of the portfolio as a whole. And that is work that we're currently undertaking with a view to setting SBTs as part of our net zero strategy. I mean, it's a comprehensive introduction. I hope you're not sort of too <laughs> bored by it. But hopefully that sort of takes you through who we are, how we integrate sustainability and where we're at in terms of science-based targets. 
Bradley, we reached the point where we reach in every episode where I ask you to explain an acronym. And so, SBTs this episode, science-based targets, what are they? I'll try and tackle this challenge without introducing any more acronyms, which is usually where I fall down on this podcast. So call me out if that <laughs> happens. But science-based targets, or SBTs, are forward-looking decarbonisation targets that align with the latest science and global commitments that many of our listeners will be familiar with. So the Glasgow Climate Pact and the Paris Agreement, which we've discussed at length previously. The validation of SVTs through frameworks such as the Science-Based Targets Initiative, or SVTI, another acronym to add to the list, yeah, yeah. Help, yeah, indeed, helps us to quantify the action required to limit global warming to that 1.5 degrees level outlined in the Paris Agreement. But ultimately, the aim is to ensure that private market ambitions meet society's requirements. And I just want to touch a little bit on our own experience. So there are mm. definitely challenges to adoption, but I believe there's also great value in setting a clear decarbonisation agenda. Having supported the NatWest Group SBTI submission, I believe that setting SBTs will help fund managers to identify greater opportunities to generate value, whilst also safeguarding investors from climate risk. And then we talk about communication quite a lot. Validated SBTs are proving to be a strong communication tool as we identify those leaders and those laggards. I would encourage funds to start looking at this earlier rather than later. It feels like the list of top priorities can be ever growing when we talk about ESG. Everything has some form of red alarm attached to it. And it's right that we have that urgency when we are looking at things like climate change. But coming back to that research report that we conducted, 80% of our participants deemed SVTs to be important to their fund today. And a further 50% considered them very important when we look at that overall metric. Funds are now telling us that science-based targets are important to their business. So I'm glad that we're exploring this topic today. Yes, Henry, I assume because you're here with us today, you're one of those funds that thinks that SBTs are important. How will they help you as you adopt them? What's the benefit to you? First of all, I think Bradley's already touched on it. From our perspective, our investor base, predominantly institutional investors, they themselves are motivated by decarbonising their own portfolios as they themselves are under pressure from their own stakeholders. So there's a societal pressure here to decarbonise portfolios. People want to see their investments be responsible for fewer and fewer emissions. Therefore, setting science-based targets irrespective of how much decarbonizing you have to do, is a clear indication of any kind of company or investment manager or investor's direction of travel. And by their very nature, science-based targets show a clear trajectory of what needs to be achieved by when. Mm -hmm. So again, it's about showing that direction of travel and showing that there's a plan in place and showing that you're representing the requirements of your stakeholders. Secondly, from an internal perspective, there's benefit too in that it will help guide investment strategies and even inform decision-making at the investment level. If there's a clear trajectory within a company for how, say, within Foresight, for how much we need to decarbonise, then it really justifies the case to make decisions that are supporting that decarbonisation pathway. And anything that goes against that trajectory doesn't make sense. So it's self-selecting. So it's, it helps from a strategic and investment level decision-making point of view as well. And I think those are the two key benefits that I'd point to. Do you think there's any other external pressures other than investors? Or is that really the main one for Foresight and yourself? We look at some of the other 
stakeholders. You've then got lenders and the banks and you've got regulators. I've already talked about societal pressures, just taking them in, in no sort of particular order. The regulators, the volume of incoming sustainability regulation. At the moment, the setting of science-based targets is not yet a mandated requirement. So people can rest easy that they don't have to panic and get something in done by such and such a date according to regulation. But the direction of travel in terms of sustainability regulation is really kind of undeniable. It's very clear for all to see. We've seen it this year already with the introduction of Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, more commonly known as TCFD, the regulatory requirements around that that were implemented on premium-listed companies. There's a large component of that that relates directly to carbon emissions. I'm fairly certain consideration is being given to the introduction of mandatory climate transition plans as part of regulation. So there is a distinct possibility there that the Science-Based Target Initiative or a near equivalent will form part of that requirement where mandatory climate transition plans are brought into regulation. Not mandated yet, but very likely to be in the near future. From a lender's perspective, we're looking at the banks. There is a general pressure towards SBTs, but I'm yet to be aware of a facility agreement from a particular lender incorporating SBTs as a designated, you know, as, as we need visibility of SBTs in order to follow through with this facility agreement. From a lender's perspective, again, direction of travel there, mandated requirement from some of their perspectives. I haven't seen it myself. Maybe other people have, but it's not quite there. We've already touched on the investors applying pressure. And I guess that is probably the primary external pressure, because ultimately, if your investors demand it, and they have a large amount of capital invested with you, it is within your interest to satisfy that requirement. And if ultimately, if investors don't see action from their managers, there's always the option they can vote with their feet. That's the primary driver. But that's not to say that it's not coming from other perspectives too. Bradley, I've been often on Just Transition. You introduced me to these amazing ideas and I think, this is great. And then I go away and look at it and I think, how on earth are they going to make this work? I'm going to ask you this question about SBTs. How are funds going to use them? How long is it going to take, even if they have the best will in the world, before they can make them useful? I won't get too deep into the process itself as the Mm. Science-Based Targets Initiative has a plethora of resources available for financial institutions and developing guidelines specifically for private equity. But I do think it's important we provide an overview of exactly what this looks like. I'm going to try and keep this brief, but (laughs) as funds start, they're required to formally commit to the SBTI before starting a two-year countdown to submit targets for validation. Funds will need this time to develop a baseline in terms of their finance emissions and their portfolio review and many use PCAF for that and then they will use that baseline to set medium and long-term targets and that is best practice to have both a net zero target and also a Paris aligned target covering scope one scope two and at a minimum scope three for emissions derived from investments now I'm not going to get into scope three because that could be an entire podcast on its own mm. but the reason the SBTI requires investment managers fund managers to look at their own investments in, as part of that which is category 15 and scope three is to reflect where they have influence and ultimately make sure that the decisions they're making integrate some kind of climate lens because really what we're trying to do when we talk about about greenifying the economy is to reflect where we have influence, where we have a responsibility as players within the industry and saying, yes, you've looked at economic metrics previously, but now you need to start considering what that impact is to the planet alongside your profit. The approach to target setting will vary based on the fund strategy. 
Asset classes such as real estate will follow a sectorial decarbonization approach that aligns emissions with net zero pathways, including those defined by the International Energy Association. Buyout, growth or mixed strategies can leverage the SBT portfolio coverage or implied temperature rating methodologies that require 100% of holdings to be covered by SBTs before 2040 at the latest. And again, that's that feeding down, that upstream downstream view where ultimately you are saying to your investments or your portfolio companies, we We've set targets, we need you to align with us. And that talks to that wider influence piece that Henry touched on earlier. Finally, one of the key findings from our research was that whilst over 80% of funds believe SVTs are important, and we highlighted earlier in this conversation, the majority are still in the planning process and 23% of those surveyed did not yet have a timescale. The process can be lengthy. Henry's talked about Foresight's own journey. So it's important that funds start this work as soon as possible. There is not regulatory pressure right now, but that is emerging. And also I think we have to look across at peer pressure as well. Funds ultimately want to be competitive. If peers are adopting SVTs earlier, you may be seen as a laggard. And so there are a number of influences driving change and the adoption of SBTs. Overall, when we talk about communication of SBTs and what we're doing with those, I think the communication at the end of setting your targets is really important here. We can all reflect on the public skepticism facing the financial industry so we can follow the science at pace and avoid falling short of our responsibilities. But that work has to start now, even if those targets aren't delivered for two years. Admirably concise, Bradley, but uh, it sounds like there is a lot more detail there. And it sounds like the SBTI does have a lot of process information. Is that right? Yeah, I would go to the Science-Based Targets Initiative. I'd review their guidance. They have a full list of different sectorial approaches. And really, that's your first place to go when you're looking to set targets. There are also other initiatives developing in the fund space, but we see SBTI as being the emerging leader. And so it makes sense for that to be the starting point. That all can be seen as somewhat dry. Um, so I'm hoping, Henry, <laughs> you can help bring this to life. I'm interested to hear how Foresight are looking to adopt SBTs. The first step in the process is to start to try and understand the carbon footprint of your portfolio. And that's what we're doing. We've done it at a corporate level. We now want to understand it at a portfolio level. And we want to be as accurate as possible. And we've been working really closely with our in-house asset management team, our external operators, our data management platform, a real collaborative effort to make sure that we're understanding, tracking and making the appropriate calculations from fuel use, fugitive emissions, energy consumption across the whole of the infrastructure portfolio. And all of that is just going to help with accurate reporting on scope one and scope two emissions. You've already mentioned the trepidation there is around scope three. Scope three is going to continue to be an issue until the entire world is carbon accounting savvy. So Mm. that might be an impossible task, which is where things like external agencies and external bodies like PCAF, who you've already mentioned, so the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, where they're so useful and they're a very noble organisation. It's important to note for anybody listening to this, they're a giant database of emission factors that essentially help you calculate scope one, two and three if you've got no other data. And more importantly, they're free to use. I actually asked them the question the other day. I was like, how are you guys funded? And they're philanthropically funded. The important thing is you're trying to fight for budget at this. This is one thing you don't need to fight for budget for, but you need to be prepared to get yourself immersed in the detail and understand how that works. But ultimately, that's a decent toolkit for which to calculate your existing footprint. Once you've calculated your footprint, then you can move on to the areas that Bradley, you were talking about, sectorial decarbonization pathways and everything else. But Ultimately, I suppose the amount of external help required when looking to set SBTs will be determined by two major factors. 
the timeline with which you want to sort of set your SBTs. So if, you, if it's a near-term agenda, you're going to need a, a lot of extra help if you really want to do it quickly. And also the accuracy. So you can use tools like PCAF to just give yourself an estimation of emissions. But is that really an accurate representation of what your portfolio is actually emitting? It's a balancing act. Ultimately, scope three is really hard to grapple with. It's a complete time sink. You could invest a huge amount of time in doing it, but you need to draw the line somewhere. Realistically, that's where tools like PCAF come in useful, where you're like, we've got so far with the data we can gather. Now we need a little bit of assumptions based carbon accounting. 60% of the solution on time or ahead of time is better than 100% of the solution after time. We've seen the narrative in the market in relation to difficulties recruiting the necessary ESG skills in-house. Do you have a view on what the balance is between those two and, and how each part works together to deliver SBTs? It's not lost on anyone. The current buoyancy in the recruitment market for sustainability and ESG specialists, there's a lot of people who have been immersed in the space, whether they were titled that 10, 15 years ago, and that, that those will be some of the people who are the deep experts and they're in even smaller supply. There's basically a huge demand for people who are able to help companies navigate the rapidly changing sustainability and ESG landscape. You're fighting internally about allocating appropriate resource to do things internally, but Obviously, there's such a huge task around the incoming sustainability and ESG regulation or around meeting investor pressures and whatever else that I dare say that there's a balancing act there as well. Have internal resource, but be prepared to go externally to draw on deep expertise when it comes to things like carbon accounting or setting science-based targets. So like I said, while it's very much worth having dedicated resource, there's still likely to be an ongoing requirement for continued external help and that deep expertise. Internal engagement within the company is there as a means to better facilitate those external parties. So it's a combination of the two. It's not a clear-cut answer. It's not go externally or go internally. I think ultimately it's a bit of both, and those will achieve the best and most accurate results. Bradley, as you said earlier, RBS International has been investigating science-based targets. You're an expert on most of these things now. It strikes me that RBS International could be helpful to fund managers. Is that something you can do? I think it's important to take a step back and remember that banks only exist to serve customers. So it's really important that all banks, not just RBSI, are evolving relationships to support the adoption of ESG, including SBTs. Our research highlighted that 26% of funds surveyed would value input from third parties, including lenders. So the demand from customers is absolutely there. And in much the same way we talk about laggards and leaders when we're talking about asset managers or fund managers. That is true of banks too. And I think the financial industry is aware of that evolving need and our ability to deliver on that is crucial to our longevity. What I would say though, is that it's really important that we don't immediately jump to solutions and that we engage with customers to understand where we can generate the greatest value. We're planning events and discussions to continue the conversation and build upon our findings within the report. So I look forward to seeing some of our listeners there. However, I'll just touch on two areas that have been identified already as part of these discussions. One of those is that we've identified being transparent with our own expectation of customers is really important. We've previously discussed that the cost of capital is expected to rise for funds without a robust ESG strategy. Therefore, fund managers should use the target setting process to engage with investors, lenders, other capital providers to prevent increasing costs or limited access to funding. We're having those discussions already and are happy to support further both on a customer level, but also on an industry level, which I think is really important here. The second piece is that Henry mentioned about the fact that we haven't really seen the kind of mandating of SBTs as part of a lending agreement. 
But what we are starting to see is the SVTs linked metrics within sustainability linked loans. And really, we're seeing that as a more of a carrot rather than stick approach. So if customers are delivering on SVTs, then they get a financial reward. Our listeners will understand how sustainability linked loans work. So I won't get into the depth of that. But the other side to that, again, is that you can amplify the message of your SVTs. So by linking financial rewards or ultimately penalties with the delivery of SVTs, and ongoing targets, because of course, setting the target is just the first process, you then have to work towards decarbonization for the coming years. So having that link is really powerful. But overall, I would summarize by saying that we're committed to supporting the adoption of SBTs and that we're taking material steps to ensure we do so. But we're taking a cautious approach to make sure that when we do deliver interventions or solutions, they really generate value for our customers. Well, that's all we have. Well, it's almost all we have time for. Bradley, I know that you like to ask our guests a question every episode. So go on. Yeah, this is the fun bit you leave for me, Tim. So before you go, Henry, the podcast is called A Just Transition. What does a just transition mean to you? I try and summarize it as best I can in one sentence. A just transition means ensuring that groups of people, whoever they may be, are not disadvantaged directly as a result of the sustainable transition that we so desperately need to make and are in the process of making. Easy to say that, better brought to life with an example, one that's been a topic of conversation on a number of occasions with people recently, the suggestion of a universal carbon tax to incentivize behavior that supports a more decarbonized economy. It's the idea that every ton of CO2 you are responsible for emitting, either as an individual or as a company, the idea that it has a price and that you as an individual or a company are responsible for paying that price. It's an attractive idea. We definitely see a quicker uptake of electric vehicles or of lower carbon home heating. You know, watch the rollout of air source heat pumps go up enormously if you suddenly started charging people for the CO2 that their gas boilers produce. However, I think it's really important to remember that if you were to just introduce this universally, you would unfairly disadvantage those who are financially vulnerable and push them further into poverty rather than using the sustainable transition that we're on to provide them with opportunity and advantage. So I think that's what the just transition is. We need to make the sustainable transition. The just transition provides focus on addressing points such as these, incentivizing more sustainable behavior, but in a way that doesn't unfairly disadvantage others. That's very interesting. Maybe we should talk about carbon pricing. That was great. Thank you. Some really interesting information, great insight. Henry, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you to all of you for listening and subscribing and reviewing us, especially the good reviews. We prefer those ones. Now, we will always be back. If you subscribe to us, you'll find that we're back every month. But in between as well, this year, we have Bradley's News Updates as well. So look out for that as well. You get that as part of your subscription. Of course, it's all free wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, everyone. You can find the full science-based targets report in our show notes or head to rbsinternational.com forward slash SBTI. We're looking forward to continuing the conversation over the coming months. And we will see you again on A Just Transition next month. So until then, goodbye.